0: In association with the Omniverse Comics Guide, this is the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from all over the world. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and this is episode 304. And we are back. Steve Mitchell, back for part two, just like you said. It's always fun to know that my afternoon is going to consist of talking to you. How are you? I'm great, Eric. I'm
1: great and nice to be back with you. What are we going to uh, <laughs> prattle on about today?
0: So m- what I wanted to talk to you about last time a little bit more was the, the time that you spent at Continuity Studios. Um, I really love hearing about all of the your, your movie history and knowledge because I, I want to get a lot more into that in, in our upcoming episodes, hopefully. But working at Continuity Comics, I think is such a landmark time. And uh, to be a part of that class, there's gotta be a ton of stories that and insights as far as the creative works that were taking place that I wanted to pick your brain about. But how did you end up at Continuity?
1: Well, for starters, I didn't work for Continuity Comics. I worked at Continuity
0: Studio. That's right, Continuity Studio. Which was,
1: for those who don't know, was an art studio created by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. Neil and Dick, who probably could have made a ton of money just cranking out comics on a daily basis, wanted to do something more. They created a business... Which created artwork for advertising, primarily, and one of the things that they did, which was I sort of I think the backbone of the studio was they created these things called animatics, and what they were was the analog era version of what a pitch deck is today. Uh, An advertiser would get in touch with them and say, "We want to kind of pre-visualize." a commercial. And so Neil, most of the time, penciled. He sometimes would ink. Dick might ink or Dick might pencil. But there was kind of an overall style. I mean, at that period in time, Dick was pulling his work towards Neil's work. I think I've said this before, and if I haven't, I don't know what happened. But When Neil showed up, everybody wanted to be Neil. Everybody wanted to draw like Neil. Everybody wanted to try and pull their work towards Neil. He had a tremendous impact, not only on the business in terms of the readership and the fans, but I think a lot of the artists who'd been working in comics were wowed, and appropriately so, by his work. So there was this period where a lot of Neil influence was being seen in other guys' work, and especially Dick, because Dick was probably of all the anchors, maybe his most regular anchor, except for say Tom Palmer over at Marvel. But anyway, so what happened, it what happened would be a client would get in touch with I think an animation studio, and then that animation studio got in touch with Neil, and we would create illustrations which would then have maybe some limited animation pieces, but it was all done analog. It wasn't done in a computer. It was all done basically with, uh, markers. I mean, the, it was drawn in pencil or laid out in pencil and then black and brown tone markers were used basically to ink. And then, uh, they would be color using, uh, these really expensive, but really great color markers. I, I think they were called AD markers. I may be wrong, but I think I'm right. Hmm. And Alan Kupperberg and I were the first two assistants at continuity. Alan was Neil's assistant. I was Dick's assistant. And what happened was, I was working in comics. I think in production. I think everybody knew I wanted to ink. And Alan had been working in production. And Alan had a number of various skills. He was kind of a he was a penciler. He didn't ink his own stuff a whole lot, but he could also letter, and he was a colorist. He was trained by Jack Adler. I had a very hard time with color. Um, I, I just don't think it was part of my natural inclination as an artist. I, you know, when I call myself an artist, it's kind of idiotic. I was really more of a craftsman. But be that as it may, um, we were literally extra hands. There, there was a thing. There's a credit in comics, I think Marvel used it, It's it would say, inks by D hands, meaning diverse hands. Mm. And I think it was that whole studio approach that continuity came up with uh, that created the mindset of diverse hands. I mean, the DC version of D hands was the Krusty Bunkers. That the Krusty Bunkers were Alan, myself, and anybody else who could be corralled into doing some work on, on, you know, doing some inks. Alan Weiss would do some inks. Ralph Reese would do some inks. Sometimes Bernie Wrightson would come in and do something. I mean, sometimes guys would literally come to the studio and Neil would say, Hey, do you want to ink some of this story that I was assigned to? But the crusty Bunkers were helping doing maybe the lion's share of the inks, like the backgrounds, maybe secondary figures, et cetera. And so, Alan and I were hired to be extra hands. And then in addition to the continuity stuff, I was inking backgrounds for Dick Giordano at the time. And I was sort of the first guy. Well, Alan and I were the first guys, but I know I was Dick's first assistant at continuity. And then other guys came in and replaced me after I moved on. I think, Terry Austin was one of those guys. Bob Wyacek was one of those guys. I'm not sure if Joe Rubinstein did backgrounds ever. I'm not I don't think so. Who else? Ralph Reese, maybe. But there were always young guys kind of coming through, and everybody would go to continuity to visit Neil and show them their portfolio. And Neil was Neil's passed, recently passed, and I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but Neil was a prick when it came to (laughs) looking at portfolios because he he would not be enthusiastic if somebody wasn't very good. And I heard him say this a couple of times. He says, this work is so bad, I don't have the rest of the day to tell you what's wrong with it. And even though that was a nasty-ass way of doing it, soul-crushing, but Neil would do that because if you would come back two months later... And say, oh, you didn't like that stuff? Well, what about this stuff? I think that's what Neil was doing. He was taking kind of that drill sergeant approach. But in point of fact, when I had gone to conventions around the country and people would say, would you look at my samples? I'd say, sure. And it was interesting. The lousier the samples, the more I had to try and talk to them. It's very hard to be an art teacher to somebody who shows you something that really shows little or no promise. It's just the way it is. It it might be cruel, but I always tried to be not like, because I'd been around Neil, I tried to be nice about it. I tried to at least be warm and friendly and somewhat encouraging. But I remember of all of the people who showed me their samples, I remember this. I was in Houston, Texas, and I think it was on a Sunday and this, This uh, woman and her son, who were dressed up to go to church, Hmm. uh, came by. They were way too dressy for a comic book convention, and I got the impression they had just gone to church. And her son showed me his stuff, and it was awful. But as a proud mom, she was trying to be encouraging because this is kind of what he wanted to do. And... It was very, very, very far away from being anything remotely professional, but it was a kid who was probably ten or eleven or something like that sure and and I was encouraging and I said, if you really want to learn how to draw, these are some of the books you might want to go out and look at and that you know the famous Andrew Loomis books. Uh, there was also not a guy named Bridgman. His stuff was a bit more sophisticated, but the Luma stuff was accessible. Byrne Hogarth had done some, you know, how to draw type books, and frankly, the How to Draw Comics: The Marvel Way that Stanley John Buscema book is actually a pretty good fundamental textbook. So she wrote it all down. Thanked me very much. I said, you know, you know, best of luck. I will say this: it's hard to get to be good and good enough to work in comics. But if you want it bad enough, you'll find a way. And That was more or less what I said. I don't know if I said it exactly like that. But I, I always tried to be somewhat encouraging. Sure. Because, listen, anybody who wants to draw or draw for a living, you know, they're dreamers. Yeah. And, and I didn't like to step on anybody's dream. Although, like I said... <laughs> I think after that one particular session where they were literally hanging on every syllable and I wish they weren't, I I just had to get up and I said to somebody, just watch my stuff. I just had to go out, just get some air, do some breathing. I think maybe I got a cup of coffee or something like that. It was exhausting. But the thing about looking at a portfolio and looking at someone's samples, there is not one person who sat behind a desk or a table anywhere and hoped that it would be lousy. The complete opposite was true. They hoped that it would be great. Right. They hoped that it would wow you. And I think we talked about this once before. I know I've talked about this in other venues. I remember the day Mike Grell came up to D.C. with his portfolio. And everybody said, hey, there's a, guy, there's a new guy who walked into the place, and he's really good. And news traveled fast in those offices. They weren't very big. And so Grell sort of showed up one day, and I think he walked out with a script or two. The other guy who did that, I think, was Walt Simonson. When Walt came up, and they said, hey, some new guy came in, and his stuff is really pretty interesting. And, you know, I think when Walt showed up in the beginning, he was good. I think he, he his style kind of evolved. But here's the thing, and this is a word I use a lot. It was good enough, and Walt walked out with, a, I think, a script or maybe two scripts. And then pretty quickly on, Walt and Archie Goodwin became pals, and they created that Manhunter feature, which was in the back of Detective for a while. Right. But it would take Walt the better part of, I think, a month to draw pencil and ink, I think, eight pages or something like that. I don't remember how long the Manhunter features were. They couldn't have been more than ten pages. I know that. Right. And Walt was kind of slow, but the smart thing that Walt did was he, he lived a very sort of, I'm not going to say Spartan lifestyle, but it wasn't extravagant. I think Walt got up in the morning. I don't even know if he drank coffee, to tell you the truth. I don't know how anybody can not drink coffee in comics. <laughs> but he would get up in the morning, and he would, whenever the morning was, I'm sure, I think he was a night owl like the rest of us. And, but he would start his day, and he was, he was pretty focused. But I think he wasn't, he wasn't fast. The thing about older comic book guys, the greatest generation guys that preceded me, and even preceded guys like Neil, was how fast those guys were. Yeah. They were astonishingly fast, they were machines. And even guys like Jim Aparo, who only did one page a day, but he would sit down at the beginning of his day, again, whenever that day began, I mean, my work day sometimes began, at 11 o'clock at night when I was working out of my apartment, I would work from 11 till 6. But I didn't have any distractions, so they were very productive in six hours. But Apparel would sit down at his desk with a blank piece of paper. And and I think he probably was a more of a grown-up than I was. He was. He was starting in the morning. But by dinner time, he had a complete page. It was penciled. It was inked. It was lettered. Wow, and that was that so, and Jim was like a machine, he was very dependable you knew he was going to give you a page a day, now I think as he got older, he stopped lettering his stuff and he stopped inking his stuff and I always thought of Paro's stuff really if you look at his Charlton work, and you see some of that crazy Charlton stuff he did which he penciled, inked and lettered That was his best work or his early DC work when he did Aquaman. I think he penciled inked and lettered that because his lettering had a real personality that went with his ink line. And so we all get old and we all slow down. So I think Jim was fundamentally a penciler and a cover artist. I think he would ink his covers, but I don't think he was inking his pencils necessarily. But the thing about Jim Aparo and like all the other guys is he was dependable. Hmm. You said, "Okay, I know Jim can do a page a day from soup to nuts." All right, and and he never didn't do that, as far as I know. And then you knew that Kurt Swan was good enough for X amount of pages. John Buscema, Gene Colan—I think at one point Colan may have been doing two or three books a month. Pencils—that's astonishing to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's I I um the one person who. When I look at what they were doing during that time, or in the 80s when I was a kid, uh, when John Byrne was on Superman and he was drawing and writing, I don't know how he he was able to maintain that speed to get things done, but it's, it's not normal that artists are able to put that much out. The way some guys were able to do back then, but did Walt Simonson? You bringing it back to him because I wanted to ask you about Walt because he's one of sure. my, one of my favorite creators. I, his Thor run, I just adore it. Did he get faster, or was that just kind of his
1: his? This, that's an interesting question, and I don't know the the absolute answer. Is I suspect he did, but the other thing is that I know that he was oftentimes. Just penciling and other people would ink. Uh, did he ink all his Thor stuff?
0: No, I don't think so. I could, okay. I could check in the credits, but I know that he did a good portion of it. And then it got passed on to Sal Busema, who did a, a serviceable job in continuing the look that Walt had kind of established. I remember that, yeah. It, it kind of blended well, but it it felt a little bit flatter, but it blended well enough that it seemed sort of seamless.
1: Well, Sal was very solid, and I do remember those Thor books that he did where I think he was trying to emulate Walt's um, style or line. Right. And ultimately, I think Walt had to get faster, especially when he was working on a monthly comic. But when he was doing Manhunter with Archie, Archie was a very savvy editor, and I think Archie was also editing at the time. And Archie, and we've talked about this, I believe, or I know I've talked about this with other people, Archie was very smart when it came to writing to an artist's particular skill and uh, uh, to, to doing things that the artist wanted to draw. One of the things about doing comics is that if you're doing something that's just a job that doesn't ignite you in some sort of emotional way it's just work all I can tell you is there were certain pencilers that I did not have if we didn't have chemistry on the page I didn't think we had chemistry I didn't think mentally I had chemistry with them
0: Hmm.
1: and it would I just got slower because I thought the work was drudgery but the flip side if I really liked inking a guy um, and I was, as I used to joke about, in the zone, I could have some very productive days. You know, maybe I could ink two, two pages and change
0: right. in that
1: day. We're, I were having fun. Yeah. Well, the thing about comics that I don't know if it's discussed, I don't know if you've talked about it with your other guests, but nobody did comics to get rich at the time I broke in. Right. We did it because it was fun. It was a job that didn't feel like a job. I mean, we we're all fucking hippies. That and and I think <laughs> a lot of people were threatened. that We all had hair, bell bottoms, boots. Um. My dad always said, you know, you're the cleanest hippie I've ever seen because I used to t- I used to shower. <laughs> you no. Know, and and I never could. I, my beard was never thick enough that I could really grow a beard. So I was generally clean shaven. I had long hair, but. He said, at least you're clean. And a lot of the guys all had that kind of look. We reflected the, t- the time that we were growing up in. We, we weren't trying to look like businessmen. We were just being who we were. And being comic book artists and freelancers allowed us to sort of be who we wanted to be. We didn't have to become squares. Right. And, okay, so we had freedom, we could be the way we wanted to, our schedule was our own. There was a lot about doing comics that was great, except the money was not great. The money was okay, especially if you were established. And the other thing is, and we've talked about this, I'm sure about it, because it's worth remembering, comics paid very quickly, you know, getting back to continuity. Yeah. I sometimes had to wait four months to get paid for something that I did for Neil, because he said, you'll get paid when we get paid. Right. So we were working for a company that was then working for the advertising company. So the advertising company probably took 30 days to process a voucher or an invoice. And then it would come to the animators and they would probably have a 30 day turnaround and maybe we would get paid in two two to three months.
0: That's I'm, a long time. That's a long I'm making time. a lot of money. No.
1: That and, and so the thing about doing backgrounds for dick and doing doing work in comics, that always paid fast enough. Right. You know, it's it's astonishing the amount of money some guys have made in comics, especially in the nineties. Yeah. I, I wasn't I wasn't on any of that. I'm trying to, well, it's a couple of things. So let me just stumble through this. I didn't work for Image.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, Image was paying a ton of money. I think sometimes it was a buyout against royalties, but they, I, they paid a ton of money. And then uh, there was that whole run that DC had with the death of Superman and anything associated with that. Some of those guys made a boatload of money.
0: Yeah, I saw uh, Nancy Grummet at a uh, con recently, and when I when I told her like I used to love uh, her husband's work during that era, she goes, "Oh, that was a great era. We bought our cottage with that stuff." I'm like, "That's that's very nice."
1: <laughs> there was a story. Uh, I was at a convention slash appearance in Houston, and the guys who were running it kind of became pals. They liked me. They also liked the fact that I could call people up and say, Hey, let's, you want to go, you want to be guests at this convention in Houston? And they, they loved me for that. They treated me very nicely. And we were having dinner and having a conversation. He said, yeah, one of the guys who inked, I think some Superman material during that death of Superman thing, he got a royalty check, I think from DC. And it was, I didn't know the, the, the number, but it was considerable. And they, they the, the freelancer went to my friend and say, well, what do I do with this? And my friend said, you buy a house. Now, I don't know if it was enough to buy a whole house or if it was enough to put down a big down payment on a house.
0: That's right. Either but it way. was,
1: it, regardless, that was a serious piece of money. I know Dan Juergens made a fortune I also know that when they, they auctioned off the artwork for the death of Superman that I think Dan – was who was inking Dan? Was it Brett
0: Breeding? I think Brett Breeding and, and maybe De- Denny Rodier.
1: Maybe, maybe. But I think whoever inked that death of Superman issue in particular, uh. that book auctioned – I don't know if an auction is a complete book – or pages were auctioned. But my understanding was they made a lot of money. Sure. A lot of money.
0: Everybody bought that book.
1: Now today, artwork is just so uh, cosmically expensive. I, I don't know who can afford it. But I was talking to a buddy of mine who was a con, is a he's a he's a film writer producer and one of my best friends, but he's also a comics fan. I think we met because he saw some of the work I inked over Gene Colan, who's one of his favorite guys. And, he, and you know, he says, "Wow, you're really good." And I said, "Well, I'm not as good as Tom Palmer, but thanks." And he had, you know, he he has a copy of Amazing Fantasy 15 in lousy shape, and not lousy lousy, but not mint and i said what does that go for what what because i i don't i've been out of the loop on that stuff Mm -hmm. and he said yeah that comic's worth about twenty-five thousand dollars." and he's working with a a dealer and at one point the dealer was going to trade it for a copy of the hulk i don't know what number it is but it was an issue of the hulk that had wolverine's first appearance
0: yeah and i said really no you can't do that that's crazy i
1: i think i think I'm thinking, well, that came out years later. And he goes, that Wolverine comic is worth $35,000 because it was the first appearance of Wolverine. Now the collecting thing is all about appearances. Yeah. When was the first appearance of fill in the blank? Right. And, okay, so those are the comics, and that makes no sense to me. Amazing 15 makes sense to me. I Absolutely. mean It's one of the most significant comic books ever.
0: Yeah, top top but, 5 but, for sure.
1: Yeah. And but artwork, original artwork now going for for tens of thousands of dollars if not more. Yeah. Hundreds depending. Yeah. And if it's a first appearance page of somebody? Get it. it for, yeah. And I literally ask everybody I know on this topic. Who's buying this stuff? Who can afford to buy this stuff? I don't know. I, I, it's a rhetorical question. I mean, I don't expect you to have an answer. but I I'm asked going. the
0: same thing because I I used to be a person that would go to these shows and I would see what was on, you know, some of the uh, some of the walls that they had set up. Sure. And I would say one day, I'm gonna buy. You know, I always wanted Amazing Spider-Man 121, like Death of Gwen Stacy. That those two issues, I want to own those. Those are special because it was about the story that the. Issue of course. was was worth something, not just because it was the first appearance of this person or this is when so and so got a haircut. Like I want it for the story. <laughs> <laughs> but so and so got a haircut. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but but now uh, I go to the shows and I'm just like I'll never I'll never be able to make enough money to get some of these classic issues. And I've been lucky enough sometimes to go to secondhand bookstores where. I've been able to find a gem that was priced extremely well or way too low and I've, you know, been lucky. But an Amazing Spider-Man or Amazing Fantasy 15, I think now it's easily will fetch you a million dollars. Wow. Close to, close to. Wow. Yeah.
1: Again, who other than Wealthy people. or hedge fund guys or whatever.
0: And what do you do with that? Once you have it, now that it's worth so much, are you actually going to Enjoy turning a page or are you gonna be frightened and you got to buy a vault now to put that there to say that you have it It's one of those for me. I'm a comic book reader I do collect because I accumulate But people ask me like you got a lot of expensive comics and I'm like, I think I do But I didn't buy it with that in mind Sure, right, but yeah, the game has completely changed and now it's a it, sh- and- it's a shame that you go to a convention and a, a recent issue that's come out if you want a signature from the artist just because you like the guy, you're paying for it because he thinks you're flipping it on him.
1: What do, what do, what do guys charge for autographs at shows? Because this is a whole new world for me. Um, it, and this is the only reason why I would go to a show now is if it would be financially worthwhile.
0: Yeah. Um, depending on what it is that you uh, are getting signed or if it's going to be graded. So Some guys are 5 to $15 a book. Uh, After a certain number of books, the price goes up. Uh, If you're going to get it graded and there's a witness there, then you're going to be paying even more. So it really all depends on a couple of things. Not everybody everybody charges, but it's becoming more of a common thing that these guys are recognizing. You're not really a fan of my stuff. You're just buying it because you're going to flip it.
1: Well, all I know is this, that over the course of my life, I probably signed... Uh, at least a thousand comic books that I may have done at, you know, when you, when you think about all the shows that I used to go to Mm -hmm. and I wasn't even really that important uh, (laughs) in the grand scheme of things, but it would have been nice to have made, you know, 50 cents or a buck or something like that. Uh, But yeah, I hear that now that that's like with uh, movie and TV stars who go to these shows, they charge for their signature, which, you know, People won't treasure something if it didn't cost them anything. That's true. You know, if you pay, the thing about paying for something is that you realize that it has a certain value and you should treat it with a certain amount of respect. Now, who knows? I may or may not ever go to a show again. It might be fun, but I don't know. But these days, I'm not going to go to a convention just to go. It's too hard. Sure. Last time I went to Comic Con for people who go to Comic Con. Listen, I used to go to Comic Con every summer, and boy, it's just so packed, and it's literally it's it's an endurance contest. Totally
0: is. Yeah.
1: Anyway, but let's go back to continuity. We yes. got so far off the. That's okay. Uh, That's uh, the, the fun track. of this.
0: That's the fun of this. How many? You years You know me. I send me on a tangent. I'll go all the way. I, I, I don't mind that at all. How many years were you there at continuity? I think I was at continuity for maybe a year and change. Okay. Would you go back and visit just to hang out and chit chat? Well, sometimes, yeah.
1: The thing about continuity was at one point, my buddy, Carrie Bates rented a room up there. um, And some other guys rented space up there. And it was kind of a destination if you were going into Manhattan or as we used to call it, the city. Mm hmm. That I remember when I was working there, guys like uh, Gray Morrow and J. Scott Pike and other guys would come in just to hang and have a cup of the notoriously bad coffee they had up there, (laughs) uh, which Neil guzzled. Neil Neil was a a coffee-aholic then, at least, but it was a place to kind of come in and hang out for a bit, have some conversation, show your stuff. The thing that was great about the business was that it was much much more collegial and fraternal. I think I've told you this before, that guys like to show other guys the work. Right. Because in the, in the sharing, there's kind of learning,
0: uh-huh.
1: learning about what you might have done right, maybe learning about what you might not have done well enough, right. or somebody might say, you know, if you'd taken some white paint and put it over that zip tone in a certain way, you could get an interesting effect. Right. You know, if you had inked with a brush instead of a marker, if you had inked with a, a dipping pen instead of a... It was a place to talk shop and to share ideas. Right. And Neil always was holding court. Neil liked doing that. Even at the 909 Third Avenue offices of D.C., where it was D.C. and the distributor, I think, Independent News, they shared one floor, and there was a coffee room with a bunch of tables and three vending machines, and their coffee was horrible as well. (laughs) But Neil liked to go in there and sit around and look at at guys' work. And on Fridays, because D.C. paid on Wednesdays and Fridays, but usually on Fridays, a lot of guys would come up and drop off work and or pick up a check, and then they would go into the coffee room and see who was there. Sergio Aragonis, whenever he was in town, wow. used to go there and hang out. Wow. Um, but Alan Weiss, Mike Kaluda, Bernie Wrightson, Jeff Jones, not quite as much. Um, and other guys who were in town, the young guys would sort of hang out with the young guys, and Neil was sort of the... Uh, Fagan character if you will uh, for the young guys Neil was sort of championing I think I got that out the right way a lot of young talent right. he was sort of he tried to promote or he tried to get guys work because Neil was maybe one of the first of the young guys people sort of forget I think how young Neil was when he broke into comics I think he was doing Ben Casey the newspaper strip which every once in a while I'll see on Facebook and I'll see what see the work and it was amazing his newspaper strip work was really fantastic and but neil was very young neil was really gifted and i think he was working at dc in his 20s and he was he'd sort of become the cover artist up there and he was doing dead man and then he did the specter and then eventually, he you know he was doing all the Superman covers. I mean, Neil was cranking out most most of DC's covers were done by Neil. Yeah, beautiful, Most of the superhero stuff. covers, yeah, and Tomahawk and some of the mystery stuff. But DC had Neil do as many covers as they could get out of him because they sold. I. I'm assuming they sold, but the thing is that they were sort of bringing the company's the look of the product into the latter part of the sixties. Mm. I mean, DC always had a very strong look. It was mostly Carmine and Murphy Anderson and Joe Kubert were doing most of the covers. I think Jerry Grandinetti did a lot of covers, but Neil sort of became the new house style for DC through all those covers. Mm-hmm. And Neil, is notorious for not having any shortage of ego. And I think that Neil, Neil always thought that Neil was smarter than anybody else who worked at the company. Right. And I think Neil ultimately splintered away from DC along with Dick because they wanted to make more money. Yeah. I think, you know, when you work in advertising, even though it takes a long time to get paid, you're getting paid more money. But anyway, so continuity was a place to work for me. It was a place to hang and it, it oftentimes became a destination for guys coming into town to drop off work because they knew they could get a free cup of coffee.
0: <laughs> At the very least, yeah.
1: As as shitty as it was.
0: You say that everybody, I think maybe I asked you this before, and I I can, I can visualize it in my imagination, sort of Neil holding court and people listening to him because he was a very good orator, great storyteller. Um and he had great he was ideas. He's a pretty good
1: teacher too. I mean, if yeah. you were good enough to be taught. But you had to be good enough to be taught. You had you, if you were really lousy, he wasn't going to try. But, you know, if you were a guy who was making a living or a guy who was starting to make a living or if your stuff was still somewhat embryonic, you know, Neil could say, "Hey, have you thought about this or have you
0: done that?" And Neil knew his stuff. Oh, yeah, no, no question about it. I mean, the influence that he had on generations to come. I mean, he, he doesn't have a deep bibliography of, like, long comic book runs like some artists may have. But whatever he touched, it had an impact. Even if it was the X-Men for a little bit of time. The few issues of the Avengers that he did, people refer to them. So you, you know that whatever he put his work to, it, it was going to be quality. But was he, was he a hippie? the way everybody else was
1: no it's strange <laughs> neil neil was sort of a hipper yeah business type neil was blessed with a spectacularly good of hair good head of hair
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we used to make jokes about it neil would say well you know i've got hero hair yeah <laughs> you look at you look at young pictures of neil he's got the kind of hair that Neil would draw on his character.
0: It's true. It's true. He
1: was he was very get, He was very lucky with that. But Neil always Neil used to wear like blue jeans or black jeans, a button down shirt, and usually a tie. That he always wore a tie for some reason because he got into the business when that was sort of expected. Right. That when Neil got into the business, he was still in. he was he was operating in a world full of grown ups Right. So, yeah, Neil never went the whole blue jeans and boots and He was that bridge for you guys. He was very much of a bridge, yeah. Yeah. Very much so.
0: Um I have questions about some of the people who might have been going into the the halls of those at that time, whether it's the DC continuity studios, but thinking of that time, some people I was talking to my friend Dave Molyneux, my co-host on the show, and we were just wondering about during that era, the creative process, because you guys were the generation who were told, don't do this because it's not going to exist, comic books. It's a dying art form. I remember Neil Adams telling those type of stories where like, do something else, because the guys before you were kind of doing it to pay the bills. You guys who followed said, we love what you've done, what you gave us as children. We want to continue the flame. Now, was there a lot of discussion about where these characters should go, what kind of uh, direction, and, and more cementing the type of stories that were going to be told? Or was it more just reflecting the times, kind of fly by the seat of the pants?
1: Well, I think all art kind of reflects the times. Right. To one degree or another, not so much in the 21st century, but at the time you had a lot of young guys who were trying to bring all of their pop cultural influences to bear. Right Now, Denny was, let me go backwards. I think you had to be inside the, the organism to affect change. And right. so Denny, I think, started out at Charlton, I think his nickname, uh, his pseudonym was Sergius O'Shaughnessy. But then he started working at DC And Denny was an incredibly intelligent, literate guy Read, I don't know how he read so many books so quickly I was always very slow But he was very literate He loved movies and TV And and he wasn't pretentious I mean, he liked genre stuff I mean, Denny O'Neill loved kung fu movies as much as anybody I ever met Yeah and after you saw the first three or four Kung Fu movies or the Bruce Lee movies, they're all kind of the same.
0: Right.
1: You know, they're exaggerated, they're comic booky. you know, got the crazy-ass sound effects. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it always fascinated me that Denny kind of liked, liked junk food cinema as much as he liked just good movies. Right. And Denny was a reflection of all of us in that sense where we were bringing pop culture... We're trying to bring pop culture into the business because the idea that comics were appealing to more than kids. I mean, the whole thing that Stan used to talk about that, you know, his comics are being read in college. Well, the average serious comic book fan I had heard was somebody between 10 and 14. Right. And then, of course, hardcore fans kept going, but. I don't think we were trying to pull down the castle or, or tear down the village. I think what we were trying to do was maybe build new extensions on the castle. We were trying to build more houses in the village, but we were sort of bringing the fan knowledge of the content
0: mm-hmm.
1: plus all of our filters as, right. as, as young people. We, some guys wanted to be political I know that Gerber and Engelhart were a little more political than other people Denny sort of I think got the handle of being more of a political typewriter because of the Green Lantern, Green Arrow stuff but at the end of the day Denny was a storyteller Right. and the thing is that DC comics with the exception of the war books were very unemotional comics Right: And I think the reason why I, I tweaked to the war books was there was an emotionality and a sense of drama in those books, and that was due to Robert Kaniger understanding the power of drama and then having s- some of the best artists in the world drawing those books. I mean, he had Joe Kubert for crying out loud. Hmm. and then he had guys like Russ Heath, and then he had Jerry Grandinetti, and he had Andrew and Esposito, Jack Abel. Etc. Etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Mort Drucker, before he became known as the mad guy, used to be a regular DC war book guy, believe it or not. And I liked his war stuff, but there's not a lot of it around. And it's interesting, very, very few originals of his survived. I think most of them were destroyed, because DC used to destroy the artwork.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because the idea was...
0: Crazy, it, crazy.
1: Well, but if someone owned the page, then they felt that they were giving away the copyright.
0: Sure. That makes sense. So a lot of the
1: twice up silver age stuff that survived from DC was liberated and that big quotes around liberated. But, you know, I know that Gil Kane and Kubert and, and Murphy Anderson, they used to take their stuff and DC would allow it because they liked them and valued their, you know, participation as, as artists. Mm -hmm. But the, the, Kanegar's books, the war books, were about emotion and drama, whereas the Julie Schwartz books were very dry. They were about intellectual things, and they were about science fiction and mechanics. And Denny came in, and he was writing stories from his gut. Right. Uh, Carrie Bates, who was a friend of mine, always tried to write stuff that was clever. Um, Len Wein... I think was a bit more emotional in his writing Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Marv Wolfman I think was just a very solid crafted storyteller Mm -hmm. and Marv was incredibly productive that's the one thing I've always admired about Marv is that Marv just oh my god the amount of pages that guy could turn out in the course of a month was just kind of amazing and ridiculous almost but Marv was very very professional and dedicated Len was a little bit more of a well, you'll have it Wednesday. Yeah, but I was supposed to have it Monday. Len was, Len was like Neil. He he didn't really believe in deadlines. And I think that Elliot Magan, when he came in, brought a certain combination of emotionality, yet sort of intellectual thinking. Elliot was a little more political. But then you had a guy like Roy, who was Roy Thomas, who was following in Stan's footsteps. Very much, yeah. Very strong comics fan, but he was also very literate, very smart, very articulate. Talk. I mean, I've never seen Roy when he wasn't talking, Hmm. just instantly. Roy just could talk. Um, Jerry Conway, I think, brought a certain kind of, um, again, genre knowledge with love of the characters, but again, he was a bit he was he read a lot as well and, and and all of these you are what you eat as a creative person yes for and sure. all of these young guys were consuming all kinds of pop culture and trying to bring it into the material and this even goes beyond the, the the 70s i mean i think one of the best examples of a guy who did that and really thrived from it was frank miller right frank miller loved movies He loved action movies. He loved violent movies. When Frank and I used to have studios like five blocks apart from one another, oftentimes on a Friday, because I rarely worked on Fridays. Friday was kind of my movie day and my delivery day. Uh, Frank and I would go see genre pictures where, you know, there was a fair amount of action and violence. And one of the things that Frank brought to, I think, his writing on Daredevil and his drawing on Daredevil was an absorption of movie ideas and movie tropes that he saw, and he said, "Well, why can't we do this in comics?" Yes. And so, Frank's influences were very cinematic, and I think that influenced his storytelling as well as the stories that he wrote. Yes. So we were different. We were we were different in terms of we were trying to maybe personalize. Well, Bernie Wrightson, another great example of like influences. Bernie loved horror movies. Hmm. You know, I know that Bernie used to go, if a Hammer movie came out, like a Christopher Lee Dracula movie or a Frankenstein movie or any kind of horror movie, AIP as well, Bernie loved horror movies. Bernie loved the universal horror movies, and he brought a lot of that art direction sensibility from those old black-and-white pictures to his comics work. There was a strange classicness to go with the bizarreness of Bernie's work because most of the worlds that Bernie was interested in drawing were based on seeing old universal black-and-white movies from the 40s. Right. So influences, I think, were a big deal in my generation, the blue-jean generation, whereas the older pros, they got a script and they drew it. Yeah, yeah, it was And I'm a not job. saying it was apathetic or anything like that, but it just wasn't quite as supercharged with Oh yeah, I can draw this sequence or I can do work on this sequence. It's going to be like that movie I saw a year ago.
0: Yeah, you guys were consuming entertainment and music and you were at the right age where issues of the world were affecting you on a a different emotional level. I mean, it's not fair to say that completely because you had guys like Jack Kirby who actually fought in World War II and had a lot of things that they must have seen and things that they were probably thinking of that would later go on to affect some of the things he drew and was in his imagination but yeah i mean 60 the 60s was uh, quite the time to, to be alive and turn on the news and i mean maybe people see the, say say the same thing today i feel today it's much more editorialized like you've mentioned before where you're not really sure how to feel about anything but you go with it because that's just what you're being told but back then I mean, you had a lot, presidents were killed, so civil rights leaders were murdered, um, and then you got the war that was taking place, that was drafting people. Like there was a lot of reason to be angry or to feel emotional about stuff. So it only is natural that it would fl- reflect in the work.
1: And and here's kind of the crazy thing, because uh, I was I have a friend of mine that I've known since high school, and we get together every week or two and watch movies and hang. I mean, I've, I've known this guy my whole adult life. And we were talking about the fact that in spite of the, 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 the times that we lived in, which were very political times, and I protested the war like everybody else. I marched like everybody else. Actually, I thought it might be a way for me to get my, to get laid. You know, you meet some, <laughs> some, some cute chick protesting and then you have this common bond and you go, well, okay. Let me tell you something. Working in comics, you didn't meet a lot of women (laughs) in comics. So anyway, um, but we were talking about the fact that we lived in very political times, but we didn't talk about politics every single day the way we do in the world today.
0: Yeah. Because we
1: were so consumed with pop culture. Okay. Now, again, I'm showing my age, but the 70s especially... I think were maybe the greatest decade in the history of movies. Now, some people would say Jaws ruined the 70s in 75. I'm not going to say that. I think Star Wars might have done that a little bit in 77. But the thing is that there was a parallel going on in Hollywood where the hippies were making all these movies that were making such an impact on cinema. So you had all of this sort of new thinking, going to the streets, going on location, taking mobile cameras, and making movies that kind of reflected the times, but still reflecting good storytelling in Hollywood. Right. And, but in terms of comics, we were just absorbing all of this great pop culture while being involved politically, I think with what was going on. But it wasn't always about politics. Like today, you literally can't have a conversation with anybody. I had lunch day with my buddy Mark Chorello, and we try not to ever talk politics. We talked some politics today. That never was the case back in the day. If you wanted to talk politics, you did. That's what I wonder. But it wasn't, it wasn't a daily thing.
0: Yeah, like at that time, like you mentioned, some of those guys, they were hippies. Danny O'Neill was clearly, he had, you know, very... It was very politically minded. and it was it was at the forefront, but how I can't imagine that there was the same level of tension and uh, virtue signaling that maybe social media is is a part of that. But today it's almost like you in order for you to develop um, and and keep a fan base, you almost have to throw your hat in and say, hey, I'm on this side of this thing. I'm worth checking out. Whereas back then, maybe, I don't know if that was the case, but you just read the story. And the story, appe- like it, it. I find sometimes I, get, I become more touched or affected by the message that they're showing me in the older comics than some of the stuff. I don't know if you keep track with anything today. I don't anymore. Because I feel like all of these things are, it's like a reverse thing. Um, let's do this, tell this story, race swap the characters gender switch the characters so that we can put that in the movie so that people could say in the comics it's like that now the movie is like that whereas before it was these are the characters captain america is from this time but you want to know what if captain america is alive in the 70s he would be friends with anybody so it would only make sense that his best friend would be uh sam wilson It, it it didn't seem like huh What's going on now? It, it seemed like you well, said, more of a reflection of what was happening on the street. To your point,
1: I don't think anybody used a crowbar back in the day. They didn't crowbar these ideas into the comics. They brought them into the comics in a way that was not being – it didn't feel forced. Uh, Did, was, was anyone kind of,
0: accused of that back then, Of, of whether it's in I the office I, or the fans? Know, I,
1: I, I, but here's the thing. You made a really excellent point about the nature of social media, the reactivity of social media is so instant. Yes. And can, and and dare I say it, go viral.
0: Yes. We
1: didn't have that in those days. And what we did have was the work spoke for itself. Now in Denny's case with the green lantern, green arrow stuff, it got a lot of legitimate press and ink um, in magazines, and I think probably in papers. I don't know if the New York Times ever did anything about those comics. But comics were a bastard creative medium. you got to remember, comics like pulp magazines for a long, long time were basically cheap entertainment. And it was because of the dedication of the writers and the editors and the artists that it was they were trying to do more than that. But it was still supposed to be cheap entertainment, and cheap entertainment mostly for kids. That comics, especially in the '60s, I think at DC, I think it was Erwin Donenfeld who was, I think, a vice president, and I think maybe he was the create the the kind of creative director, and they may not have even used that term. My understanding is Erwin Donenfeld would have a book or a series of books that would have the covers for all the comics. And I think he would have the sales figures to reflect how those comics sold, because what DC, it was all about the cover. And there was a reason why there were a lot of giant gorillas hmm. they sold. There was a reason why there were giant aliens and dinosaurs and stuff, which goes to me being a little kid. I love big stuff. Right. I didn't give a shit what it was. As long as it was giant, giant monsters, giant insects, giant spaceships, giant aliens, giant bugs, giant robots. I mean, even Egg Fu, the stupidest thing I've ever seen in any comic. <laughs> this, this 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 Fu Manchu egg that was, I guess, a, a villain in the Wonder Woman universe. Anything that was big, kids loved. And I think Erwin Donenfeld had this kind of non-digital, very analog system for kind of analyzing the way comics sold. And so what they were always trying to do was sell comics that they thought kids would buy. The Blue Jean generation came in and we were trying to sort of work with that, but then bring more stuff to the medium. Right. And because there were so many young guys, I mean, Roy Thomas was young. Roy was the the successor to Stan... But Roy was still young and full of enthusiasms, and he wanted to bring, I think, maybe a a more literary kind of sensibility to the writing. Right. I know that I know that Len did as well, I think, but but everybody was different. Then you had a guy like Archie Goodwin, who was kind of a synthesis of the old school and the new school. And Archie loved movies and Archie loved bringing stuff to the to the work that reflected the, you know, the pop culture he was absorbing yet. In his own way, he was trying to recreate E.C. comics over over at Warren. I I don't know if we talked about this, but I will just go on the record and say I think Archie's work at Warren, when he was editing and doing most of the writing, created some of the greatest, if not the greatest, comics I've ever read. I mean, in their own way, they were as good as E.C. And I think E.C. was always considered the greatest comic books of, of their time. And they're still good, by the way. You know, you look at a lot of EC stories today and you just I kind of get knocked out by the quality of the work and the art and the story. And Archie really was trying to recreate that whenever he could. But when he was working at DC or Marvel, I still think like the other young guys, he was bringing some of that sensibility along with him, that pop cultural absorption to the work. So they were stimulating times. There were interesting times. And I again, I, the work spoke for itself.
0: Right. I have a question about one of the, uh, the the guys who showed up in comics during that time. I don't know if, if you have insight, but Jim Starlin, when he shows up on the scene and he does the, the thing with Thanos and Warlock, and, and why I asked this uh, bring him up, and it's kind of like a double question so I shouldn't con- make it too confusing, but it's an LSD trip I feel when I was reading his stuff. Did that have a lot to play? The, the the fact that everybody was a hippie and maybe they were you know smoking dope or taking stuff at the time did that affect a lot of the create creations of that era? I think
1: we all smoke pot. Most of us smoke pot. I smoke pot, and I think that the the smoking of pot and then a doing of some other drugs opened up our minds to sort of more fantastical stuff. Now. You would think that Jack Kirby took LSD every morning with his orange juice. But I think that (laughs) Jack Kirby had been to war. Yeah. And I think Jack Kirby had PTSD. Interesting. And this is a guess on my part. Because once Jack kind of got lost in fantasy. Yeah. he He got lost in fantasy and in his head. And he was just. Not on this planet in many ways.
0: It doesn't seem like, he seems like he was LSD. Like the stuff that he came up with and the things that he drew and some of his his ideas aren't fully fleshed out, but you're like, what's going on in that brain? Well, yeah,
1: and it was unique and it was different.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And Stan, I think I used this analogy before, I think if Jack Kirby was atomic energy... Then Stan was Enrico Fermi. He was the guy who learned how to harness Jack. Right. Now, how much of it was Stan creating or Jack creating? I don't know. But Jack's work was never better than when Stan was the editor. Mm -hmm. I mean, when he came over to D.C. I remember the day, by the way, when the announcement was made. Uh, it was at the 909 Third Avenue offices And Carmine Infantino came into the production department Had everybody in the office come in And Carmine stood on a desk Wow Didn't need to do that But he did it yeah. And he was making the announcement That Jack Kirby was going to come to DC And at the time there's, well, There's no other way to say it It was a big fucking deal Sure that the man who was Marvel Comics was coming to DC. But, if you read any of those Fourth World comics, (laughs) uh, they were gibberish. Yeah, yeah. I didn't didn't know what the hell was going on in those comics. I mean, I liked the look of them. I mean, I I had a fondness for Kirby's work. But, at the end of the day, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And, ultimately... I think nobody else did, although we were all on Jack's side. Right. But it's a great example that how Stan was able to steer, right, Kirby, through all of that crazy-ass creativity that he is known for. Uh, so you got to give Stan some credit for that.
0: And I asked you about before about Starlin. Sorry, I, I. Oh yeah,
1: so bringing it back to Starlin. Yeah. So I think Starlin was. Let's say cosmically influenced some by stuff, and I think again he was sort of doing his version of Kirby. Yes, I think that he was kind of bringing the sort of fantastical, phantasmagorical aspect of Jack to his work. I think that's what—that's kind of the thing that Starlin really was into. And um, I think, I believe this is true. I think on an issue of Captain Marvel, Jim transposed the S and the M on Comics Code Authority. So I think that that Comics Code Authority uh, little box that was on every cover said, uh, approved by the Cosmic Code Authority. (laughs) Jim was mischievous. I think we were all kind of mischievous every once in a while, Um, but... I don't know that Jim was drawing completely drug-influenced comics, but I think I think drugs were around and some guys would use them and they were influenced by them. But I think in, in Starlin's case, and I never talked to Jim about it, Jim was a very quiet kind of guy. He was a friendly guy, nice guy. But I never really talked to him about sort of what made him tick. But I suspect like he and Al Milgram and some of the other guys from Detroit – I think they're all very influenced by what Kirby was doing and what Marvel was doing at the time
0: hm Al Milgram, that's a guy whose name you see everywhere, but it's never quite <laughs> as celebrated. He seems like the the most loyal, dependable soldier to help you get a job done, but a lot of people always say Al Milgram's work was serviceable, but they never like celebrate him what What was he like? Did you know him well? yes, I
1: did yeah okay. i I knew Al. I work with Al partied without oh. he was a very charming gregarious kind of guy very cool. he was unlike some of the rest of us he was i don't think he was ever in a bad mood or if he was he kept it to himself he was always upbeat he was fun he loved laughing about stuff um i think as an inker in the beginning His stuff was not as formed as as it got to be. I think Al became a really pretty talented guy. But Al was inking Starlin because they came from Detroit together, so they were kind of a team. And then it was interesting that DC promoted... uh, uh, They came up with this interesting idea, and I don't know who was responsible for it. I'm going to say maybe Joe Orlando but they hired al and they hired larry hama to be editors Hmm. and i don't know that larry ever really did a lot as a freelancer
0: Hmm.
1: I i think he was slow not everybody was fast um i think ralph reese who i thought was very talented was also a little slow um Slow speed-wise, not intelligence wise. Of course, of course. <laughs> well, these days you have to differentiate. Yeah, I, I get and it. But they hired Al and they hired Larry. And I think Al and Larry brought a lot to the table creatively. They were hiring guys like Jerry Conway. I didn't think Jerry was the greatest editor. I think Archie may have had some input into this. But I think Al and Larry went on to be really, really, I'm going to go so far as to say exceptional, because I think of some of the work that they generated as editors was really very impressive.
0: Hmm, interesting. I've been asking, I've been talking about it a little but bit. But Al
1: more. was just the, the, was gregarious and fun and easygoing. And then I noticed as his work continued, he started to find his style that worked for him. And Al turned out to be a very talented guy a craftsman and he was also very professional
0: it's nice to hear
1: he was one of those guys who appreciated the word deadline not not all of the young guys did
0: that's very cool I like hearing these stories I, I often ask some um, creators from that generation if they could share tidbits on uh, people such as Mark Gruenwald, who I feel was a real heart and soul of, of Marvel during those those years maybe more in the 80s when he was an editor on a lot of stuff did you did you come in contact with him
1: yeah he was my editor on iron man in the 80s and he was a to me anyway a slightly enigmatic guy Hmm. he was very low-key i think he had a really good sense of humor
0: Hmm.
1: but he was just He wasn't as gregarious as some people like Mike Carlin was his assistant and Mike was a bit more of the more uh, open book kind of gregarious kind of guy. But they they shared an office and they shared a sense of humor and a certain mindset. And Mark was a good guy to work for. I mean, I didn't have an overabundance of contact with him because. Luke McDonald and I were doing Iron Man and we were kind of on time and, you know, there wasn't a, you know, the best thing about working with certain editors is you sort of see them when you finish the work or you talk to them when you finish the work and there was no, yeah, you were really late with this one or yeah, you really fuck things up. Look, I would be the first to admit I would fuck, fuck up deadlines from time to time. As we've talked about before, doing comics was a grind. Right. And if, and if you had a few bad days, well, that's a few bad days where you didn't make as much money and a few bad days where you were behind the eight ball in terms of a deadline. But Grunwell was a guy I never really knew terribly well. But I know he was held in
0: very high
1: regard by people who work with him at Marvel.
0: Yeah, seems that way. It's nice to hear uh, nice things about people who were taken too early, but all of the things that people say are always in a positive way. And not just because... They're no longer with us because I think, like you mentioned before, you said some things about Neil Adams that are undeniable. We know that he had a huge ego. He knew that he was Neil Adams and he let you know who he was. But then you, you got to be honest, right? And and when you hear about Mark Greenwald, everyone just says how much he loved the medium and how much he enjoyed working with people to get the best out of them, which is always kind of what you want, right?
1: Yeah, he was very dedicated. He was... I think there's certain guys who don't get as much attention because maybe they weren't freelancers. Mm-hmm. But there are guys who sat behind the desk at the various offices who were very impactful on the medium because they, they had a great passion for comics. I think, starting with the Blue Jean generation, there was a certain passion for the medium that the old-timers might not have had. Mm-hmm the old timers the greatest generation guys they were professional they were easy to work with they were boy they were great guys to go to a party with they were
0: you <laughs> know they were grown ups
1: but they were kind of kind of grown ups i think we all wanted to be on some level right but you know they had wives they had kids they had mortgages and you know like i think i told you that jack Abel used to ink 18 panels a day and i said why 18 and he said that's basically three pages so Jack was inking 3 pages a day. Astonishing to me, but he did it like clockwork because he was a grown-up. We weren't grown-ups. We were we were a little bit more self-indulgent. But I think what we brought was an an extra level of enthusiasm to the medium. Yes. That maybe we weren't as professional some of us weren't as dependable, especially Neil. Neil was not dependable. <laughs> but when the work came in, you would be distracted by how good it was. Right. But we brought, I think, the, I think we brought a renewed passion for comics and storytelling.
0: I think that continued off into the 80s because I, I haven't read a ton of stuff from the 70s, but I have a fondness, especially more for the Marvel stuff. But going what you guys pushed into the 80s became like it's all sort of one nice tapestry that if it wasn't for that enthusiasm it's hard to say where where things would have gone
1: I agree and you know guys like Steve Englehart I know were really passionate about comics um, I'm trying to think of all the other writers I mean most of the writers that I knew were pretty passionate about what they did mm-hmm. I don't think anybody just tried to knock shit out <coughs> And and really, with very few, you know, I think exceptions, very few of us had families and responsibilities. Mm. Um, I know that Dave Cockrum, who I'm sure you've heard, was like one of the nicest guys on two legs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he got married and I think he had a kid. And Dave was not overly fast, but boy, Dave loved doing comics. And I, I can remember many parties where, you know, he was just talking on and on about comics and Man, he loved them. He loved what he did. He loved working in comics. I mean, the thing that was nice about our generation, and maybe it's true for every generation, but like I said, we were all headquartered in the tri-state area of New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. So the business was there. We would interact a lot. Now the business is international. Right. And guys live in South America, or they live in Europe, or the Philippines, or they live in Denver, or they live in in Iowa, they live in Chicago, they live in New York, they live in wherever, Florida, and you name it. Because of FedEx, now not even FedEx. I mean, most stuff is delivered digitally, I think.
0: Sure, yeah, email, airdrop. So
1: there is no center of the universe. I think the reason why Comic-Con has sort of grown in, in I think attendance and maybe popularity and became kind of the one con that most guys went to was it was a chance to meet some of the guys in the business and interact with a lot of other pros. I mean, a lot of guys came to California after I did. I don't think of myself as a trailblazer. I think Marty Pasco was a trailblazer. He was one of the early guys who came out here and Marty was doing comics, but he's also working in animation right steve gerber was one of those guys who came out here but i think after i left i mean guys like marv and len uh came out i'm trying to think who else followed but eventually a lot of got shaken shaken came out here what uh, brought
0: you I, out there what, what made you move to la i moved to california for a couple of reasons one or california where are you in los angeles i live in los angeles okay I I've, I've been it. in
1: Los Angeles almost 40 years, which is shocking to me. Uh, but I came here for, for a couple of reasons. One, I would come out for Comic-Con in July and then spend a, a few days in Los Angeles after I would go to Comic-Con, which was in San Diego. And the weather was so nice out here in the summer. And I said, this is great because I don't know if it, for anybody who's listening, living in the Northeast is rough. You have brutal humid summers and you have brutal cold winters. You live in Canada, so it's even worse than that. But I was a little tired of that. That's number one. I was a little tired of being in New York. New York was kind of falling apart as a city. Now, I lived in a a pretty decent neighborhood and the, the, the parts of the city that I mostly was going to on a daily basis were not Nasty-ass crime-filled neighborhoods. But New York was falling apart. Yeah. In in the 70s, the the city went broke. And there's a very famous New York Daily News headline, Ford to City, drop dead. New York needed money. New York was really in bad shape. Now, I think of New York in the 70s. I don't have any problems. But if I watch a documentary, for example, of New York in the 70s, I go, holy shit. Yeah. What a pit. Yeah. But... Again, when you're in the middle of something, you sort of figure out how to handle it. You kind of improvise, and um,
0: it doesn't know, phase funny. you either. When it's just your day to day, you know how to how to navigate through it all. You know which ways to take and where not to be. Right. Yeah. Well, New Yorkers. Well, wow, did I go away? You're still there. I, I, I can still see. Hear oh, you there and I am. You. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, New Yorkers figure out how to handle things. Yes. But if you watch movies shot in New York in the 70s and you see the graffiti and the dirt and the garbage and everything like that, that's a reality. Yeah. That, was, that was a thing. So I was a little tired of it. My wife didn't want to leave, but we had an opportunity to sort of take advantage of a couple of things, and so we went west. I also wanted to get into the movie business. Um, I had a number of friends in Los Angeles that were you know, hammering away at me. Saying, when are you going to move out? When are you going to move out? You don't have to live in New York anymore. And I didn't because there was FedEx. Mm-hmm. So delivery, overnight delivery, was, was an everyday thing. You didn't have to worry about that. As long as you get to the FedEx office by 5 o'clock, you're in good shape. Right. And some nights I had to drive down to LAX, our airport out here, to take go to the FedEx office because there was a 6 o'clock cutoff if you went to the airport. So sometimes I needed to do that. (laughs) Be that as it may, I just was ready for a change. And, and also the movie business out here was something I was kind of curious about, interested in. And so I made the move. Had I stayed in New York, I suspect, and this is arrogant of me to say this because no one, no one said this is what would have happened. But Dick who was a very good friend of mine and my mentor. I think might have tried to get me on as an editor at DC.
0: That's that sounds very plausible.
1: It it, it was it it's it's plausible to me. I don't know how I would have survived because I'm a, believe it or not for a guy who has a lot of opinions, I was a lot hotter about those opinions back in the day. I wasn't overly argumentative, but I was a New Yorker.
0: And New Yorkers have a conversation that's almost always an argument. Did you come to so, L.A. with a New York accent? Did I what? Did you move to L.A. and have a New York accent?
1: I don't think I have a New York accent.
0: I don't think you do. But I wasn't every sure if it was... a,
1: Every once in a while, I'll hear a little bit of it when I do a commentary track. Okay. But for the most part, my dad and myself did not have New York accents. My dad was born in New York. But my mom and my brother... Had a little bit of the New Yorker kind of accent where it's sort of lazy diction. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so it's weird. I mean, people used to say to me in New York, I was too mellow to to be a New Yorker when I lived in New York. And then because I was thinking about California a lot. And then I get to California and they say, You're such a New Yorker. can win. now after after nearly 40 years there's a kind of a blending of it all. Yeah. But you know, I didn't have to stay in New York, but had I stayed in New York, who knows, I might have uh, I might have been an editor at DC. I don't know if I would have lasted. Interesting. That's that's the thing that I think about sometimes, but I think I might have gotten the shot. I was talking to my friend Dave Manick recently who we had sort of lost contact for a lot of years and And due to the internet, it's a great way to sort of rehook up with people. And Dave was an editor at DC. Joe Orlando helped him become an editor up there. And Dave loved being an editor, and he was pretty good at it. And they were happy with what he did. But I think after about three years, he just wanted to sort of walk down his own path, perhaps as a freelancer. And and he left. The other thing is that he left town. I think he, he, he got married and his wife wanted to leave New York. You know it's it's interesting. people of my generation, we kind of think of New York as a great place to be from. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't think I know anybody who is still really there. I think Mike Kaluda is one of the few guys who's still there. interesting. But Mike Kaluda didn't grow up in New York, but I think a lot of the a lot of guys who grew up in New York, left New York. I think Paul Levitz is still there. Paul was a born and born and raised Brooklyn guy and I think he's still there. But not a lot of people are still there.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of those things I think even for myself growing up in in a major city, as I get older, I'm starting to appreciate seeing green a little bit more than steel brick. Me too. So I think that that's something I think the people who grew up in the country they get enchanted by city life, and people who have been in city life, they enjoy it, but then they're starting to be like, you know what? It's kind of nice where it's quiet. Something funny happens. What's your favorite... You know, oh, go ahead.
1: I'll Just just to put a button on it, though, one of the great things in my life was living in New York in my 20s. Yeah, New York is a great place to be when you're in your 20s,
0: I can't because imagine. you have
1: the energy and the stamina to really enjoy the, the pace and the rhythm of the city, but... I guess I was starting to lose that even... Because uh, I, left, I left New York when I was around 30. And I think I was ready.
0: Yeah. Do you, uh, what was your... What was your favorite memory about that era when you were part of that blue jean era?
1: I'll tell you, I know exactly what... what, what that's what's your not part at all.
0: Yeah, tell me. There
1: was a night at the Society of Illustrators which is this great place on the east side, which is the, the upper east side, which is kind of, as people call it, the French Poodle District. It's where people who have money lived, And the Society of Illustrators had this sort of uh, townhouse. And Neil kind of organized or was involved with the organization of this, this evening where a bunch of European comic book artists came to New York, to I guess meet their counterparts in America and there was this huge cocktail party gathering at the Society of Illustrators the Society had this great room and it had a full bar and so you had this great meeting of these kind of artistic superpowers you had, you had the French and, and some of the Italians and some of the Spaniards basically in the same room with all these americans mostly the young guys and and neil was one of those guys who like i said i think organized it and all i know is i'm meeting guys i'd never heard of i met i met mobius mm. when he was before he was mobius he was still Giraud. Right. His, his his real name was jean Giraud. And I knew some of his work because he drew this Western strip called Lieutenant Blueberry. And it used to be in this weekly comics magazine that the French put out called Pilote, which was printed on glossy stock. And ultimately, um, some of those came across the Atlantic and, and guys in New York started to get a sense of what these Europeans did. So I got to meet Giraud, I got to meet all these other guys. And it was just the greatest night. It was just, we're in this in ma- an amazing place, meeting all of these fascinating versions of ourselves who spoke with accents or who didn't speak English. And it was just a night that went on forever after the official cocktail party was done, about 30 of us walked over to first Avenue where it used to be a lot of pubs and bars and stuff like that. Again, on the East side, we went to one place that I used to go to on a regular basis. And I walked in and I said to the guy who was the manager, I said, uh, you got a table for 27. He said, you're <laughs> kidding. He said, you see those people outside the window. He said, yeah. I said, they're, they're all with me. It's only because I knew the guy. It's not because I was, I yeah, was yeah. the host. I just knew the guy. And he said, Steve, give us a few minutes. And we'll set it up. So they, had a whole bunch of tables next to one another in part of the restaurant. And it was just hanging out and talking shop and it was just the greatest night. Amazing. It, it's, it's, one of, it's probably my favorite night from being in comics back in the day.
0: I'm pretty sure whoever else was there would probably have a similar fondness of that memory because I, I even remember uh, Neil Adams talking about when he would when he met Mobius and they would discuss page rates and things like that, just how he revered those guys from Europe. So to have them all in the same place at the same time during an era when, you know, you didn't have social media and Facebook and ways to connect with people. And like the internet. Now.
1: We, yeah. Look at how much we we've learned just because of being able to access the internet.
0: Yeah, exactly. We didn't
1: have that in those days.
0: So everything was just so mythological <laughs> when, you, when you finally meet these people from the other side of the pond that they're here now. I apologize for my dog barking through your whole story. That's okay. She was playing security guard for once in her life, and now she's here to see what we're doing. So I apologize for that. <laughs> well,
1: give her a little pet for me.
0: There you go. Steve is saying hello, Colby. She's, she's our 13-and-a-half-year-old uh, puppy. I still call her my puppy, but yeah, she's yeah. still going strong.
1: Yeah, that's
0: great. Well, thank you so much for coming back. I could talk to you for hours about your history and your stories and comics, but um, I hope we can do this again soon. And we, I wanted, I want to do a uh, a movie review episode with you about a movie you recommend to me to watch because I want to understand and appreciate movies as much as you do. Because I love them, but I'll be honest, I don't have that same eye for it that you got. So you got to give me, you well, got to train me in the ways.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I'll do I'll do what I've done to some other people is just kind of steer them in the direction of certain I think must see movies. Um, a friend of mine said, "Do you have a list of your your top one hundred movies?" And I said, "No," but I was shamed into making a list of my top fifty. And so what he's done is he wa- he's watched a number of those movies just to sort of see how I think. Yeah. But again, they're favorites. Yeah, let's do them. I'm not going to make it critical, but most of the movies that are on my top 50 are actually considered good movies. But some of them are genre pictures. Some of them are just, you know, favorites from when I was a kid. Great. So I'd be happy to do that with you at some point. You know, maybe we'll have a preliminary uh, conversation about it. and Yeah. I'll, I'll maybe suggest a few titles and then we'll go from
0: there. That sounds great. Well, again, thank you so much for for coming on to the show again. Do you want to let people know what some of the things you're working on or where they can follow you? Well, two things.
1: Uh, One, I'm working on this uh, documentary about uh, an actor named Wingshauser, this uh, really interesting uh, working class actor, as he puts it. In fact, that's the title of it. And COVID kind of has slowed things down a little bit, but we're, you know, I've got most of what I need to start editing, but there's still a few people I need to talk to, and we're working on that. Pre-COVID, people were a lot easier to just kind of make an appointment or kind of figure out a date and a time, and we would just go in with a camera and do it. Now it's been a little bit more complicated or complex. Uh, The other thing is that I have a podcast of my own called True Believers, and we are expanding the platforms that it is on, and it has been... We we have, I think, I don't think of any of the details. My my partner, who I do it with, um, he's taking care of all of that. But he says that now we're on, on Spotify and Apple and a few others. We were just through Patreon, but we're expanding.
0: I've and, downloaded a few of those episodes, actually. So, yes, it is on Spotify.
1: Okay. so And it was originally my memories and monologues, but I brought in a few friends as guests. In fact, we just recorded one. With uh, my my writer producer friend Cyrus Voris and uh, Mark Shirelo, former uh, art director at DC Comics, and he's also an unbelievably talented artist. And we did a we did we used we have lunch together a lot, and we always talk about Mount Rushmore. Yes, he's on the Mount Rushmore of comics. So we did we actually did an official. Uh, Mount Rushmore of writers, artists, anchors, cover artists.
0: Oh, I want to hear the list. And you guys did it on the show?
1: It's it's pretty long. I don't know if it's if it's up yet, but I'll kind of let you know. But what I'm trying to do now is now that we have X amount of hours in the bank, I think they're like 30 hours, maybe, maybe more, maybe less. I'm not sure. I just do them. They just tell me to do them, and I do them. But they started out as these somewhat 15- or 20-minute monologues, and then I started to just get more comfortable. And I would pick certain topics that had meaning to me or that I felt I could talk about. But now I'm going to try and drag in more of my, uh, my pals from the business who are still around. Sadly, a number of them are gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys like Marty Pasco, Len Wein um, passed away in the last few years. But I'm I'm reaching out. Um, I think my first new guest might be Carrie Bates. Excellent. Who is well known but not known. Right. And understand. so I'm trying I'm trying to rope him in on, on, on one. And then there's some of my other pals who I'm also gonna try and talk to and see if we can kind of get some living history out there about uh, the Blue Jean gene Generation days, because the frightening thing, Eric, and it's really frightening to me when I think about it, is we're talking about fifty years ago.
0: That freaks me out too. It <laughs> well, it doesn't feel like that. It because uh, I read those comics. Some of them now for the first time, I understand that they're from, but it doesn't dawn on me that I, when I was young, Superman had just become fifty years old. Now he's you know eighty five, something like that. So the passage sure. of time is like. Really, it's that long ago. Wow, incredible. Awesome. Yeah,
1: so it's I'm when I started doing DVD special features and commentaries, it was just around the time where people who had worked on stuff in the '60s were starting to leave us. I mean, I I kind of backed into doing that work initially on the Combat TV series because I had done film journalism uh, in back in the day but comics went out mostly. And when I was doing stuff for the uh, DVDs on combat, like a couple of the guys who were very, very busy, uh, uh, the director, I think, who had directed more episodes of the show than anybody else had died, like I think six months or a year earlier, and I would have loved to have talked to him. But I did talk to quite a few people. I talked to Robert Altman. I talked to Richard Donner. I talked to um, um, Amazing. Well, uh, uh, George Fennedy, Michael Caffey, some of the stars. Um, and a number of the people that I interviewed are gone now.
0: Mm.
1: And so as I continue to sort of go through, I mean, Larry Cohen, the guy I made a movie about, yeah. is, has left us. Yeah. And there was no internet unless somebody, in, like Tom Weaver, who was famous for doing lots of interviews with genre people, horror and science fiction genre people for books. Also does great commentary tracks. But he was lucky enough to talk to a lot of those people and I realized that when comics that that comics now might f- have forgotten my generation or my era. And so why the reason I like to talk to you and I do this podcast is just trying to create some living history about something that is worth remembering i think all creative disciplines are worth remembering every once in a while when i read an article about rock and roll i realize boy there's probably a thousand books about rock and roll that i should read you know it's bad enough i haven't read all the books on tv and and features i wanted to read but you know music history when you kind of take the time to look into is it. equally fascinating
0: sure yeah
1: so I, with all, all of this in mind is why I'm trying to get some stuff on the record about comics at the time and thank you so much for letting me babble on about the, uh, you know the old days and you know I will go so far as to say they were the good old days
0: no they it's they were fun I you know what I love talking to I just at the last fan Expo, the one panel that I rec- that I requested to do was a spotlight on Mike Grell. I'm gonna post it because we recorded it live, but um, you know a wealth of information, very influential work that he did with Green Arrow, and not enough people were at that panel in my opinion. Mm. It should have been something where people. He was w- a
1: very nice guy too. He was a real character. I like Mike.
0: Yeah, he's, um, he is definitely a real character. Great story. We telling. always
1: we always had a good time and a, and a bunch of laughs when we would hang out together.
0: Yeah, so I I love talking to your peers, your colleagues of that time, because they really, I feel, cemented some of the best parts of comics that people are still going back to today. They're still naming, you know, modern day comic book series or or miniseries off of those stories that that you guys worked on, and it's very important to see where it comes from, in my opinion. I never well, want I, it to be forgotten.
1: And I think you're right. And and listen to and to give credit to the greatest generation guys who made us fall in love with Mm comics that we wouldn't have been where we were, had we not fallen in love with what they did. I think every generation to some degree feeds off the other.
0: Yes. A hundred percent. And I think
1: every generation grows from one another. Yes. And so I think, since I'm sort of a film historian these days, I mean, I've done, I don't know, over a hundred commentaries, I think that it's important just to, to remember these people and to talk about their work and talk about their impact because, and this is a, a little bit of a knock on young people. I don't mean it to be, but young people tend not to think about stuff that occurred before they were born. Right. And that doesn't mean that, I mean, everybody's interested in what they're interested in i'm just trying to sort of in my own small way contribute to the knowledge base for things that i'm passionate about
0: and it isn't even like like you said the the younger generation it isn't even the attention span isn't there but it's also that level of appreciation of history it's like you know it, it, you you kind of like some people it's scary I talked to them about, you know, music before my time and they'll, you know, ah, I know one song from the Beatles. I said, no, you don't. You know, probably 10 songs from the Beatles. But the fact you don't recognize that you should you should look into that because it, it's influenced a lot of the music you think you like. So it's it's nice to see where things come from because it helps you see, you know, the whole creative what binds us is it with all of these things, they, they all connect. And the, the music influenced the comics, the comics influenced maybe what they did in movies, all these things. When you know where they come from, it just adds like a richness to our lives.
1: Yeah, I agree, uh, and, and a certain depth as well. Yeah. And I'll give you a perfect example for your, more, for your younger listeners. I think most people go to the movies know who Hans Zimmer is, right? the composer. Well Hans Zimmer's biggest influence, based on what I've heard, was he was a big fan of Ennio Morricone, the astonishingly prolific Italian composer.
0: For the Spanish Western. Or the Italian, Western, for Italian spaghetti, spaghetti Western. Mostly
1: best known for the Italian Westerns, but you know, he did things like Once Upon a Time in America and The Mission and The Untouchables. I mean, his filmography is staggering and there's a great documentary out about him called Mar- I think it's it's either called Ennio or it's called Morricone and it's it's a great great documentary but no Ennio Morricone maybe no Hans Zimmer right you see the reason i bring that up is like every every generation is inspired by previous generations and it's all part of this big mosaic or puzzle or whatever you want to call it we're all, it's all attached we're all attached
0: yeah we're connected yeah, yeah so
1: we- it's it's I think, like I said, I think it's important to get stuff on the record. Listen, every once in a while, I'll go on YouTube and I'll put in the Dick Cavett show. I'll just do a search, and they will have video of his shows with old movie stars, who, very infrequently, I ever saw interviewed at all. You know, because the talk show thing became kind of, was a six, really came into its own kind of in the sixties and seventies. Well, Cavett will do an hour with with certain movie stars or certain people you would never see interviews with. And you go, wow, okay, that's interesting.
0: The original podcast. Uh,
1: Yeah, boy, look at you, the original podcast. (laughs) I can't top that. That's got to be the exit.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. I I really sincerely enjoy spending time with you and talking uh, shop and history and hearing you tell us stories. Please come back again
1: likewise it's fun it's fun to gab about it
0: it's great thank you everybody for listening rate and review the show keep track of the things that steve is working on uh download episodes of his podcast if you like the conversation today because there's going to be a wealth of way more interesting stuff that he's going to 30 hours you said you've got i can't so wait. far i think
1: we get about 30 hours of me babbling on yeah
0: i can't wait thank you again steve. <laughs> thank you everybody for listening Rate and review the show as always. It helps with the algorithm and all that stuff. We will be back soon.